everybody. It's Vinnie With Ken and Glenn. And you know, J.R.R. Tolkien. We Merton got him in that quick, was the, which Right off the bat, was the Merton Professor of English Language and Literature at Merton College, Oxford. And that may give you a tip as to what we're going to talk about today. No, not Tolkien again. We got the letters. We got the emails. Did we? <laughs> no, we didn't. Okay. Anyway, because we're going to talk about him again. But Anglo-Saxon, that's the thing we're going to talk about today. The Anglo-Saxons as a people, as a culture, as a their literature, their identities, all the things. This is going to be a three-parter, folks, so strap in. Everything is better in threes. So <laughs> it really is. We're going to start off this one with series on the Anglo-Saxons. We're going to look at the history first to kind of just give a broad overview about who they were, how they came to be. And thanks to a, uh, a great professor of English who tried to follow in Tolkien's footsteps, who I've never met but I would really like to, by the name of Michael Drought, he has come up with, with a way to remember the different sections of Anglo-Saxon history. A mnemonic device, if you exactly. will. Exactly. <laughs> MacGyver. <laughs> okay, lay it on us. MacGyver. Not all the letters, but if you do the M, the C, uh, the G, the V, and the R, you get the migration period, you get the Christianization, you get the Golden Age, you get the Viking invasions, you get the Restoration, and then basically everything after that, There's there, it doesn't fit with the mnemonic, so it's, just, <laughs> it's from 1,000 on. It's from 1,000 yeah, so. to arguably, but not necessarily believably, 1066. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's good. That's a good mnemonic. But it also brings up the question, the Anglo-Saxons, who were they? Let's begin with the M, <laughs> the migration ex- period. Exactly. Well, let's, yeah, well, the name itself, Anglo and Saxon, would suggest certain tribals, affiliations, maybe people called Saxons, maybe people called Angles. And that's good. To an extent, but it's far more complex. Yes. Imagine, if you will, a Briton made of Romans. <laughs> oh, what a almost a Romano British. You could say a Romano British area. Yeah, yeah. And then the Romans, or at least the authority of the Romans, decides to pull out of Britain, leaving uh, Romanicized Britons, and they go on for a little while. If there was a King Arthur, he this helped the against these line. invasions of these folks from what is now Germany, Germanic tribes right. uh, of Angles and Saxons. And jutes, right, and some other little some dabbles others. in there. And the thing is, I mean, starts though before the invasions. I mean, you've put your finger right on it. It, it. This is all about the Romans because when the Romans, I was going to say settled, but let's go ahead and call it what it was. When they conquer <laughs> Britain <laughs> in self-defense, in, absolutely. God, those 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 Celtic <laughs> British people had it coming. How dare they have a country that they hadn't had invaded yet? <laughs> anyway. So when the Romans get over there, there there are some rough times. You know, you may have heard of Queen Boudicca's revolt and things like that. But basically, th- things settle down to business. But one of the things that starts affecting business and businesses trade back and forth across the English Channel, you know, to to the continental Europe. There's these pesky pirates. It's always pirates. Oh God, I just want to eradicate them so badly. And, their eye uh, patches and their peg legs. And they, uh, but these, but these pirates are people from the Germanic tribes of, of Northern Europe, and it's people like the Angles and Saxons and such. Specifically, the Saxons have a pretty good reputation for you know zipping across the Channel, relatively speaking, zipping across the Channel. Right. But they're raiding the, the the southeastern coastline, and so the Romans start building fortifications on the coast specifically to counteract the Saxon pirates. So that's where there's this first interaction and where the Saxons, by that name, you know, first enter history. It's because the Romans are saying, hey, we had to build these forts because these guys keep raiding our very, you know, lucrative trade we've got going on. 
and they're very much harassing, but they're not invading, but they're the thorn in the side. So now, as you say, then in 410, you know, the emperor says, all right, Celtic, it's, Roman, It's not Britain. like he tells all the Romans to leave, but he says, I'm, I'm pulling the legions Pulling out. the legions I'm out. Pulling, I'm pulling out the military authority. Right. And without the military authority, there's less and less ability for the natives to resist uh, well, those, first, first those off, resist, incursions. Well, well, really, and to also resist the Welsh and the Scots, or what come to be known, yes. the Welsh and the Scots. So, you know, there's all these pressures from there. And classic blunders 101, the, so, some of the ruling elite of the Romano-Celtic sub-Roman Britain, as it's called, they go, you know, those Saxons, what if we just pay them to come over and fight with us? They're pretty well, good. We'll pay them to fight the Scots and the Welsh and maybe even the Irish that keep trying to come exactly. over from the West. And, and, you know, and, that, and you know, that works. And, Until and the Saxons <laughs> realize, you know what, they, they keep paying us really well and we keep having to go back and forth. What if, number one, we stayed here... <laughs> And number two, we just took their money and set ourselves up because they're, this is obviously an incredibly rich land. Exactly. And that's a key thing, too. The island of Britain and the British Isles in general are good farming land. It's fertile land. You, you, you can grow food and an excess of it and animals that you can like pull wool off of and make into fabrics that are known all over and, the continent. And, the, and these archaeological studies have shown that post-Romano Britain becomes quite depopulated, which means there is a ton of already improved arable land that's just sitting, sitting fallow and there's no one there to farm it. So the Saxons are able to come in. Right. And it's almost a ready-made farm situation. Well, an agricultural an infrastructure. Agri- yeah, there's an agricultural and infrastructure. And transportation because the Romans have already built your roads for exactly. you. Exactly. Thanks, Romans. <laughs> and they built your capital, London, for you. <laughs> that was so nice and, of them. And so more and more of these Saxons and Jutes and Angles yeah. come over, and then, of course, they start fighting amongst themselves. And remember, this is this is uh, pre-Christian. This is, this is, these are pagan peoples. Right. So they come over, and they begin to establish themselves. And... Eventually, what you get is because they're the power structure, they're the invaders sort of taking over the, the upper levels of society, they begin to set up kingdoms. And it's the, the kingdoms that are set up in this early period that really start to solidify and become the classic Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. Northumbria, right. Mercia, Wessex, Essex, right. the, yeah. you know, those places. And you see, uh, you know, this is one of those things where traditionally, and when I say traditionally, I mean, you know, the the heritage we've got from the 19th century British Victorian historians that lingered well into the 20th century, where are these these barbarian raiders doing these things in the Dark Ages, which, you know, we don't like any of we've those We've already terms. had an episode we on how much we hate the but Dark Ages. To, to just an example of, of how much these people weren't barbarians, and it wasn't Dark Ages, you have to do nothing further than look at Raidwald's tomb, which is what the Sutton Hoo find is, is supposed to be. King Raidwald, which was a, a late 500s or 6th century, one of these petty kingdoms or minor kingdoms, whatever you want to call it, sub-kingdoms of of England. It's this incredibly rich find. You know, the village of Sutton Hoo in the 30s, they find this ship burial, and it's pretty good evidence it's this Anglo-Saxon King Raidwald. And it's just gorgeous. There's stunning jewelry work. There's clothes in A, there's gold, there's silver. The the, the tomb itself is incredibly constructed. The ship is amazing. You know, it's it's a very sophisticated—clearly, if you can produce that, it's— a sophisticated society. So just just on the archaeological evidence alone, you can say this is no dark age. I believe they this... uncovered that in 1938. Yes, studied they did. it for about a year, <laughs> and then and then they had to un- basically cover it back <laughs> cover and say we'll get back to this when we kill the Nazis. Exactly. These other Germanic people. That's a whole. <laughs> They're other also episode. trying to come over here. <laughs> I don't think it's going to have the same result. So, um, but one of the cool things I like about that 
find is, you know, the the ship, even though there's some evidence that it's, it's a more ceremonial style because it's a king's burial, but the basic outline of that ship, the double-ended, narrow-beamed, long long and narrow-beamed, <laughs> yes, you know, a good ratio to be- beam and length, somewhat shallow draft, that's the Germanic ship. That's the Northern European, sail the North Sea, sail the English Channel. That's the ship that's going to be used by Scandinavians. You know, the Norwegians, the Danes, the, the, the Swedes, the Vikings, you know— th- because that type, it works. It works. You can These row people, it. You can sail it. Exactly. Uh, Even that early, in the, in the, which is why the Romans built the coastal fortification exactly. against them. They had these cool, small, fast, maneuverable ships that could come in, steal some gear, and go away. And that ship is there the whole time. And, you know, we don't normally, or in the popular imagination, I guess because of their success in conquering Britain, you know, we don't think of them as sea raiders, but that's how they started. And that's how all of those, that all that northern European along the coast of the North Sea, the Baltic, and all that, that's what they did and, so well. And that's something, this is a visual, so y'all are going to have to sort of imagine or, or, or pause this and, <laughs> and pull up a map of northern Europe. This is important to remember in this time period. We look at a map of Europe and we see the land masses. We see France. And Germany and England over there, sort of across the sea. And that's when we look at it, that's what our mind sees. Yeah, we're conditioned to. But I want you to look at that map and look at the North Sea. I want mm. you to see the North Sea mm. as the center of the map and all these lands are around it. Scandinavia and, and England and, and Ireland and, and northern France and what comes to be northern Germany. Look at those as the periphery Absolutely. and the North Sea is the central point. And it remains that way. We you could till the Norman Conquest? Maybe after, depending yeah. on which perspective you're taking. Remember, yeah. that was the main area of conflict, naval conflict, in yeah. World War One. Yeah, yeah. The, oh, absolutely. The English and yeah. the Germans still. are still fighting over the North Sea in World War Two. That's yeah. where the Bismarck comes out. They're fighting yeah. over the North Sea. Yeah. It's incredibly... It's not central to Europe geographically, but culturally and economically, it's very central. So yeah. anyway, that's why it's so important <laughs> that the Saxons and the Angles and the Jutes and these other tribes become pirates, and then they become more formal power structures. Right. They get a land base, which comes to be called Angleland yeah. for the Angles. Right. And then we have come up with a term to describe that, that country as, Angle, as an Anglo-Saxon period to right. kind of combine those. But there were other tribes, right, like right. the Jutes, which is where you get Jutland. Right, right, um, exactly. Exactly. Something needs to be said about the work of you know Brian Sykes at this moment because you know he's been this huge revolution in the study of genetics and he's he's got that book uh, about the, the the roots of current English population, the current population of, of you know the United Kingdom, specifically the island of Britain. What is what is their genetic makeup now? And and looking back and trying to say okay. Since, since that genetic legacy, as they've done, they've shown that it is still mostly, mostly everyone is still descended predominantly from Celtic Britain. Right. That's the gene base. You know, the Romans didn't displace it, or you'd have all, you know, mainland Italian, yeah. European genes. And, but the Saxons didn't displace it either. It's the, the gene base still is predominantly that Celtic British thing. So now that's fueled all these people going back and forth with, well, then see, it wasn't really a... A Saxon invasion, and really it was very tenuous. And, and then other people say, well, no, what that was, it was the conqueror effect and the apartheid effect with the genes. And, it, and it's just, it, ha- it hasn't necessarily solved things unless one posits that much like the Norman conquest, where it was a ruling elite that dominated the, the subculture, but they gradually assimilated. Oh, maybe that's what happened. And there's also, yes, 
There, and people come in and they they want to settle, they want to rule, they want to collect taxes, and they intermarry. And they intermarry. And they and they integrate, like you said. It's it's not just right. marriage. It's not just genetic. It's economic. It's language. It's burial rights. It's food yeah. ways. And, and all here, these and things. And here's the other thing. With, with on that very note, I'm so glad you said that because and this is going to tie into a lot of stuff we talk later with with history or with, with culture. But it's not like. The British population, the Romano-British population, yes, they've got that veneer of, of Roman culture, but it's not like they're that dissimilar from the Anglo-Saxons and Jutes. They're not that they're not dissimilar. That. So this, this assimilation is a big, huge air quotes over my microphone, yes. relatively easy process of assimilation. Well, they're, relatively. Not, they're not similar, and yet, like you say, yet they are. And yet they are. Um, their religions are different. Their religions are different, their true enough. Their cultural mores tend to be different. Right. Their their view of where they fit in the world right. there tends to be different. But again, when they begin to interact, they become a part of each other's world and that those two, you know, two is a very general term, two worlds right. start to merge into one as the Anglo-Saxon invaders, the, the migration period, right. as they settle on the land right. and literally and figuratively put down roots, then they're... They become part of the soil. They become part of the fabric that is Britannia. And then something happens. <laughs> We're only on the second part of this. <laughs> the, the Christianization right. begins, and there's some resistance to that, especially from you know some of the different the, these kingdoms that have formed Northumbria and Mercia. These are only sections of England now, but these kingdoms become incredibly centrally powerful because mm-hmm. they begin to, to gather together these petty kingdoms and put them under not not one king of England but but king of these different regions. Right. And so it's the elites again that start to adopt Christianity and right. a lot of times it's through the women that Christianity becomes adopted and becomes part of the mainstream because these Anglo-Saxon kings begin to take wives and the wife, the, the 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 missionaries begin to realize that it's the women and the wives of these kings who are sort of the way in to, mm-hmm. to Christianize places. Because just like the royal family now, <laughs> style and things tends to drift down. Whether right. we want to acknowledge that today or not, that's the way it uh, is. Yep, yep. And so when Christianization takes part, it and it only ta- it takes less than 100 years. And, yeah. and folks, here's the interesting thing. Sometimes people want Christianization efforts to be seen as this incredibly bloody, oppressive thing. Not so... In England, right. between five and six hundred A.D., it's pretty bloodless and it's pretty openly welcomed right. by the native population. It's 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 and adopted is, within is, a couple of generations. And if you've said a couple of times before, you know, it also results in very quickly English monks and clerics becoming the best in Europe, and now they're going back over to continental Europe. You were, yes. we were saying this just the other day, yeah. that now no no continental king is, well, my course not complete unless I've got an English cleric. I've got to have an Anglo-Saxon guy. I've got to have this guy over here. Well, and you know, Alcuin of York was in Charlemagne's court, and he's and Charlemagne said, you need to make all this cool stuff happen. Create a uniform yep. set of writing, create right. a bureaucracy and all these things, and Alcuin of York... Of York, remember this is of he York. does it, <laughs> yeah, because he's a result of the golden age of right. Anglo-Saxon England, and, and, which and, takes and, place around six to seven hundred AD. And, These are and, very, very broad generalistic. But this dates. Uh, one of the things you said the the English bureaucracy, the Anglo-Saxons create a very stable working government that absorbs different invaders at different times for the next two or three hundred years, because who knew these these sea raiding pirates. 
are pretty good at establishing a bureaucracy. Why would you do that? If, if this because, looks to be a wealthy country, yes, <laughs> you can't just go and take someone's corn and declare yourself king because you're rich. There right. has to be a way right. to gather the wealth and then to use the wealth right. to increase power, right. to increase uh, influence and things like that. So you have to have a bureaucracy in place exactly. to get rich. Exactly. So, so you know, as we progress here, th- there's that stable, rich, and now Anglo-Saxon or English government in place, and and now they do start having a series of invasions. Now it's still a lot of different the Seven Kingdoms, the classic Seven Kingdoms, but it's really Alfred in the face of these Viking invasions is the guy that finally unifies England. I think as a, as a high king of as, England, as high king, is yes. it, this is it. I am now the king, as opposed to here's the king of this area, this area, and this area. We're all kings of England. Now it's the king of England, right? And he's able to stop these invasions. And then, of course, there's uh, when the Scandinavians reign supreme with Canut after a, a really yes. successful invasion. Well, and and, and that, but I, I bring that up because of course Canut, by all accounts, was pretty good. He had a North Sea empire, yeah, a North he, Sea empire, exactly. He had Sweden, he had Norway, he had Denmark, and he had England. That's pretty good. Unfortunately, his two sons were horrible. The Anglo-Saxons are restored, <laughs> but only for a generation before, of course, the most famous invasion, the Norman Conquest. Right. But even with that, I want to bring it back to end with, even when that bastard William got over here, what did he leave intact? The bureaucracy. Because it, like, it worked. Because it worked. Absolutely. So so the we talked about the we, – we mentioned the Golden Age – Next episode, that's really what we're going to come back to because it's during that flowering of the golden age of Anglo-Saxon England where you get some of these great stories and some of the great literature. literature and uh, the roots of our language that we have today absolutely. is right there in that Anglo-Saxon golden age. But, but until then... That's for next time! Bye, everybody! <laughs> bye. Then Again with Ken and Glenn is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. If you've enjoyed listening to Then Again with Ken and Glenn, please make sure that you subscribe and help us out by writing a review. To learn more about the Northeast Georgia History Center, visit www.negahc.org.